Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Legal Weekly Wine, where we discuss the week's hottest legal topics. Up this week is the First Amendment freedom and protections. We have had a lot going on the last few weeks regarding um, President Trump, Sidney Powell. We are going to talk about the Harvard letter and the fallout from that letter. And then at the end, we're also going to talk about the presidential immunity regarding Trump's claim of immunity in the case against him by Jack Smith in special counsel in D.C. and the response that they had. So we're basically going to be talking about First Amendment freedoms and protections and presidential immunity. So thanks for being with us. And before we start, we're going to do a brief moment of silence um, for the mass shooting in Maine that has happened this week. Um, we want to make sure that we look back and think back and remember those who were affected by that tragedy. So for all of you, if we'll just have a brief moment of silence and then we'll get right back into the program. All right, everyone, thank you for continuing your thoughts and your prayers and your good vibes toward everyone in Maine. All right, I'm Virginia Tarani. I'm with The Law Unscripted, which hosts The Legal Weekly Wine. I'm also a full-time practicing attorney in Maryland, D.C. and Virginia. And I am with Dr. John Vile, who is a leading um, expert in the First Amendment, as well as the Constitution, and he's the dean of the Honors College at Middle Tennessee State University. Thanks for being with me today. It's a pleasure. I, I want to make sure to describe the Harvard letter, because this has truly been the, the hottest legal topic um, for a little while now, because it's, it's dealing not just with letters and Harvard and withdrawal of executorships and, and board memberships and scholarships, but it's really dealing with this impending war and the current war between Israel and Palestine. So as I understand it, um, when the initial attack was made by Hamas into Israel, within hours, I believe, or at least the very night that, that America learned of these attacks, there was an open letter that was posted on social media on behalf of more than 30 student groups, what they're calling a coalition. And the, the, this open letter said basically that they were blaming Israel for the attacks on Israel, saying that Israel was, quote, entirely responsible for the Hamas attacks. And it went into additional language regarding that um, something to the effect of claiming that Gaza and the Palestinians had been in something of an open prison for a number of years um, by Israel and, and condemning Israel for the attacks. We, we all have things that, you know, that bother us in life and our Absolutely. situation, you know, but this was, it, it really is shocking that you would have 30 organizations of any kind who would be willing to just say, this is all their own fault. The question then is constitutionally. They had a right to say it. Okay. Uh, we have a right to make fools of ourselves. <laughs> uh, well, I mean. No, I, I like so, that analogy or that okay, thought. Okay. Right. Now, 
would there be a circumstance, you know, if you were, if you were sending this via a loudspeaker to a group of people with guns who were getting ready to go into Israel, would that be permitted speech? Probably not. I mean, that could pose a true threat to individuals there. Okay. So, but, you know, express, and, you know, I, I guess the one thing you might say, even for students at Harvard, is, is you give you give a little bit more of a pass sometimes to people who are young, mm. maybe having completely, you know, uh, it, it, young people particularly, all of us like to be morally indignant and get up right. on our high horses, and you know, let's live, let's put attribute some of this to sort of youthful indiscretion. Uh, but it really, I mean, it was a silly statement, but frankly. Right. And some people but have it, said, man, many of the students, I don't, I don't know how many, but at least some of the students have retracted their statement saying we didn't fully understand. Some right. of them have said we didn't know what we were signing. Um, right. So they're trying not to. But the, the bigger question to me, so we know then that that statement, that social media post was protected. But some of the fallout, I want to see, does, does the fallout actually align with the First Amendment? The First Amendment will let you make a fool of yourself. It won't necessarily, it will not shield you from non-governmental consequences of what you say. And, you know, one might, if, if to my knowledge, the president's office at, at, or administration of Harvard did not endorse this letter. Had they did they not. So, had they done so then you would have particular reason to say, you know, what in the world is a college president, you know, what does a college president necessarily know about the situation in, in Israel? Right. You know, what qualification and by what authority do, you know, are they evoking all the alums and students to, you know, to say such a thing? Well, and, so, and there's been a criticism even of Harvard by the absence of a statement for so long. There were statements made, right. um, but many donors, many alum have said, wow, well, it took you way too long to condemn these statements to make sure that you said, no, we're pro-Israel. This is not our sentiment. We rebuke them. We say that this is bad. Um, so many are saying it wasn't necessarily the letter itself as to the lack of a response or the slowed response of the Harvard leadership. Right. And, and, and where a president would have, in fact, it's interesting, I just corresponded with the college president within the last week or two, and she said that when she had taken her job, she made an ex explicit promise that she would not comment mm. on political issues other than those that directly affected her university. Mm. That's probably wise. Uh, you know, especially if you're a state university, you might very well want to comment on you know, is the state budget adequate or inadequate for our needs or something like that? In the case of what's happening in Israel, it would certainly be appropriate. And, and I hope that every president or administration would at least convey that, you know, fortunately, we're in the United States. We don't have an official religion. Uh, we have equal rights for people who are Palestinian or Jewish or yeah. Arab or whatever, you know, whatever their nationality is, and so much as is possible at our university, you know, we're going to treat everyone equally. No one needs to fear in our university that we would tolerate this kind of behavior. Mm. Uh, in sort of end of story. Now, you sure. know, if they, 
if they, partly depending on what their background is, I could see a college president saying, now I'm, you know, if let's say you had a college president, well, one of their presidents was a former secretary of the treasury, I believe, Summer. I think so. Uh, you know, if, if, if he had been a former diplomat and wanted to comment in his personal capability, capacity as to what he thought, you know, what I'm saying is my own thoughts mm. as a diplomat rather than my thoughts as a Harvard president, he probably could do that, although might might or might not be prudent. But, you know, an organization can say what they want, but don't be surprised if you have people, you know, who decide to withdraw funding or decide mm -hmm. to withdraw membership or just say, you know, get a grip. And <laughs> you know, all of that then is is legal and constitutional so all of those actions yes now what about i want to ask about two specific responses one is the call by executives firms wall street um where they're saying release the names of these students so that we know who they are and some have rescinded letters of you know job letters some have actually said we're going to make sure to basically blacklist them in our organization so we don't hire them. So rescission of hiring or prevent prevention of hiring, is that okay, at least constitutionally? As you stated it, I think there are at least two issues. One would be what we call FERPA. Uh, what what was that? Lot I, I wish I knew what it stood for. I, as soon as I said it, I thought, okay, <laughs> my daughter's a lawyer. She'll know. <laughs> I, I don't think I actually do, do know. Okay. You caught me on that well, one. Okay. So so there's a law, basically, if, if a parent calls me as a dean about their student, I cannot give any private information regarding that student unless the student has made a waiver mm. that I can talk to their parents. Okay. Uh, and it's it's awkward sometimes. You want to say, well, you know, uh, yes, <laughs> well, you want to tell them more. Yeah, they're flunking out, but no, you can't. Uh, so I don't know. I mean, th there are special federal rules as to what private information, particularly regarding academic performance, of an individual can give to parents. And is there be, a difference between public and private schools? I know you're at a public yes, school. There, there, there is, uh, although I, I don't know the degree to which FERPA applies to private schools. I really think that it may apply to both because I think it's a personal privacy right that's being protected. But in terms of, right, so we got to the first issue, can they release names? And I'm not sure that they can. But then the second issue is, you know, can someone punish an individual for speech that they have given? Now, the, cost, the First Amendment starts with the words, Congress shall make no law. Got it. And that through subsequent interpretation that I think we've talked about, that has subsequently, that right is subsequently expanded to any any state action. So neither the Congress nor any other governmental entity can punish an well, punish private individuals for speech. Now, if you can actually, in some cases, 
if an employee speaks on behalf of an institution without authorized authority, they can suffer the consequences from that. But at a at a uh, private institution, right. a private if a private institution gets in, I mean, if a private employer decides not to employ someone for speech that they have given, that is, as I understand it, within their rights. Now, oh. unless there be some kind of contract or you know something something else that would intervene, but yeah, an employer can say if somebody is stupid enough to not to know the difference between attacking unarmed civilians and, and, you know, attacking member of the armed forces, we don't want them here. That's within their rights. And I think it's similar to me. It's similar as an employer, um, as an owner of a small business and someone who's looking at potential candidates. I, (laughs) to me, if you put it on social media, it's all access. If you know, you want to, look like, you know, if you want to go out and party, if you want to have pictures of you doing drugs, if you want to portray yourself in a certain light on social media and I get to see it, then I don't have to hire you. No, that's right. Right. I mean, I mean, there's a certain persona. There's a certain thing that I'm representing as a business owner and don't want to have associated with my business. So if there's someone who's doing these things on the internet or saying specific things, then I would choose not to have them associated with my business. I don't have to hire you. You can get another job. I'm not preventing you from getting a job, but it doesn't have to be with me. And in that way, it seems like that's what these private actors are doing for students in a private university. Yeah, I think they're within their rights. So... What about, here's where I think we get to, at least in my mind, a difference, a true difference. There was, um, they call it doxing, that there was a truck within, I think it was within days of, of this letter coming out, the Harvard letter, that circled the square, Harvard Square, And it was huge truck with a a digital billboard that posted photos and names of everyone who had signed the letter. And it was just driving by. Now, it was funded by a a conservative organization. And within a fairly short amount of time, they were made to stop. But during the time that they circled, I mean, how many news agencies and students took pictures and videos of all of it, and now it's all over the web— Was that a violation of First Amendment freedoms? To stop them? Well, there's that. But in my mind, for them doing it at all, was that a form of risk? Was that crossing a line where you're actually putting students in harm's way? You're threatening their safety, whereby, because it was said, Harvard's leading anti-Semites. Um, was what was posted on on the digital billboard. And I mean, in my mind, be, they're at physical risk. Well, we, you, ha- you know, we've had similar questions that have arisen out of grand jury proceedings. Mm. You know, should you be able to post names and addresses of individuals who were on a grand jury? Right. And 
I mean, part of the issue, what I don't know about in the case of the Harvard, in the Harvard case, is I don't know where they got the information. Mm. If they got it from a public document, I suspect they were within their rights to do it. Again, Harvard is is a private institution, so I think they're also probably within the rights if this occurred on streets in their vicinity, maybe in within the rights to try to move it move it away. But is it a uh, is it a risk where do we allow speech, which this is considered speech, even though no one was speaking? Right. Do we allow that if it is a, a risk of harm to someone's safety? Does anyone have the right to go out and label someone where it's potentially, I mean, allegedly some of these students were getting death threats. Their family members were getting threatened at home. Um, so because of this billboard, because it actually posted the individuals, and like you're saying, grand juries, there's the question also of judges, right? Posting the addresses of judges. There was a Maryland judge this past week who was killed. Their their home address was was found, and the the judge was shot and killed in his own driveway. So, at what point does fear speech this this posting of an address, posting of a name? where it would invite, to me, almost invite violence. Uh, hey, here they are, come and get them, kind of speech. Is that protected? And if so, how far? Well, one thing, they better make sure that's accurate. They get somebody's information wrong, uh. then you have a case of slander or libel depending on whether it's oral or written. So if one of the students didn't actually sign the, the paper. Right. Or maybe even if gave a false address, you know, gave the wrong address. Um, I, I don't know, frankly, uh, where the line would be here. Um, if, if it were accompanied by, here are their addresses, go burn their houses down. Uh, or hear directions to their house, throw a Molotov cocktail into their house, that would certainly be considered what we would call a true threat. Uh, but isn't that the implication? Isn't that truly what they're kind of trying to say is, hey, here they are, come get them, without really saying it? I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, I, I don't know that incident as, as well as you apparently do here, but I mean, well, I let think, me let well, me compare it. I think yeah. it's more like public shaming. Hmm. And, you know, can you publicly shame people? Yeah. Is it a very nice thing to do? You know, probably not. Or are you going to convince somebody, you know, that <laughs> what they did was really vile and stupid? Probably not by, you know, employing these tactics. But short of actually calling for death or dismemberment, probably in and of itself posting the names. I mean, in a sense, if they signed a petition, they've already posted their names. Mm. Okay, so let me compare it or ask you, in my mind, it's almost similar, if not completely similar, to the January 6th issue for Trump statements, right. where he doesn't specifically say, let's go lynch Mike Pence. 
let's go storm the Capitol and hurt people. Um, let's do this to a particular person. But those statements or new statements that he's made against Mark Milley, uh, this is a traitor this would cause, you know, in other times this would be treason and death. Those things seem similar to me where they're almost an invitation for others to do violence. Well, this goes to a concept that as a lawyer you're going to know more about than I do, but mens rea. Yes. Intent. Uh, right. And one of the tricky things, particularly in the Trump situation right now, is ascertaining the degree to which there is some evidence that he knew that there may that people may have been armed there. Uh, he certainly knew, you know, he certainly had been purveying an untruth about the election. Uh, did he to what degree did he actually intend for people to be hurt? Uh, or know that they would be. Right. And, you know, that's why, you know, in this last week, this, I, I don't think it's actually a new revelation that maybe Mark Meadows has been cooperating, but that apparently now they're saying he actually cooperated to the extent of talking to a grand jury. And potentially may have full immunity. Right. Or may be given. And so, you know, I, I think that's, that's why his testimony could be very important here. If Trump gave any indication to him that, you know, maybe if they knock in, a, you know, knock a few heads, uh, people will give me the election or something to that effect, then he would have much greater responsibility than if he just didn't quite see where it was going. I mean, the other, oh, wait. And the I other think, let is, me clarify names. Mark Milley versus Mark Meadows. Okay, right. Yeah, Mark Meadows is... Mark Milley. Mark Meadows right. is, the, is the advisor to, to Trump. Right. Apparently was in, went, I believe, actually attended the speech that he gave and was in, you know, was with him in the dining room as he was watching the, the events on Capitol Hill. Part of what you have in Trump's case, it's a little trickier or you have an additional element, which is he has an obligation to execute the laws. And he had a response, he arguably had a responsibility as chief executive that I would not have mm. if I saw a riot trying to step in to stop it. Uh, Does, for the First Amendment, so I keep saying invitation, almost an invitation, but is there a difference in the First Amendment for incitement? Well, there's the famous case we know we've talked about before, Brandenburg versus Ohio, um, where you have a Klan rally out sort of in the middle of the the countryside. They burn across. Someone basically says, you know, if the policies don't stop, some revengeance must be taken. Mm. Uh, But the court decided that in that context, rural areas speaking to your own supporters who may or to my knowledge, weren't even armed. I, I could be wrong on that. But that would be much different from addressing a group of armed people in the vicinity of people that you hate or people that you want dead. So, you know, there the 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 test that the court applied was there needed to be a a threat of imminent lawless action. And with and, imminent being the key. Right. Imminent and, and probably, you know, when they said it's almost like they needed the term violent in there as mm. well. You know, if, if you're urging people to 
and I think this actually happened last week or two. If you're we're, you're encouraging the lie down to represent each of the Palestinians or each of the Israelis who have been killed, you know that's one thing. If you're if you're saying let's take one out for each and one of them that's been taken, then that would be something something else. But sure, you know that's a relative. I mean that's a relatively high bar. Uh, there are not many occasions where. I would be able to say something or you would be able to say something that would be likely to provoke someone to imminent violent lawless action. Hmm. And, you know, we want to keep that standard high. And that's why I I don't I I think I think just having a name on a billboard would be too attenuated here. Where it's Uh, not imminent lawless action. Right. It's, you know, and you'd be, you know, something of a fool if you think about it to you know, be taking down names and looking up their addresses and going to their house and killing them or something. I mean, that's, right. you, you would be emulating the same kind of conduct you're presumably condemning elsewhere. So, right. So I, it doesn't protect the people who are now calling and threatening them. Um, well, it, that, that's right. In, in other words, if somebody, somebody then calls and makes a threat, if, if it's a true, what's called a true threat, and here again, the lawyer, you're going to do this better than I am, but assault, right? Mm-hmm. You can have an assault without a battery. Correct. You, you, you can make a threat, particularly face-to-face, in a, in a fashion that someone would be so intimidated that they would expect to be killed or harmed. Right. That that in and of itself would be as almost as offensive as being beaten over the head. Or, right. Or, there is a reasonable belief of yes. imminent bodily injury or death. Yes. So, yes. yeah, that's, okay, that's, I think that is the key and that's the difference in, in all of this is that Brandenburg test of what is imminent lawless action. What's again, the call? I don't think it uses the term violent, but I think really when they're talking about lawless action, they're thinking of, you know, a, a riot or physical physical harm. Right. Some Some form like the the assault and battery of imminent serious bodily harm or death, something yes. to that extent. Okay, so with that, let's go into the speech. Let's go into, since we're already talking about um, Donald Trump, let's hit his other speech this week. So we've got the Harvard letter. We've got, now we've talked about January 6th and the speech there. This last week, so we, last week we spoke about the gag orders, or two weeks ago, it's running a little together for me, but the gag orders for Donald Trump and, you know, what is he allowed to say? What is he not allowed to say? Can the judges even, you know, make gag orders? Is this a violation of speech? So go back and watch those, um, that episode. But in looking at those orders... We know that Judge Ingeron um, in New York has put a gag order against Donald Trump in the civil case, the civil fraud case regarding his potentially inflated numbers, or I I guess the judge has already said these are inflated numbers. Um, He said, look, you can't talk, you can talk bad about me. You can say anything you want about me, but you've said something about my staff. I take that very personally. I need to protect them. And in particular, it it stemmed from a 
a comment about the judge's clerk right. where he had posted what a picture of her with a, a, a prominent Democrat leader in Congress and had said that basically she's extremely partisan. The, the trial should be tossed out immediately because she was the girlfriend of this, this person. And the judge took that to be possibly leading to lawless action against his clerk that someone would interpret it that way. And may, I don't know when, if you're going to get to this, but yes. last week it was like a $5,000 fine. Correct. A day or two ago, he gave an additional $10,000 fine. And what was interesting is what he actually said. And he said, I want to protect my people. Yes. Or, and, and I think he even mentioned, he says, I don't want anybody to die, I think is actually what his it, I think so too. quotation was. And, you know, he was doing what, what, what I think any decent judge would do in this circumstance. You're not going to... You know, and this this applies equally. Now, what I wondered is I think he did let him get by with saying some things about Cohen that could be considered libelous, although some would say they were partly true, which is Cohen does not have a sterling record in terms of a consistent story. Right, truth. Um, but in the case, you know, particularly of someone who has worked you know, it, it's like the election officials in in Georgia. Mm. Words can have consequences. Yes. And going back to the libel and the slander, if you're going to make a charge that someone was not carrying out their duty and was miscounting or, or refusing to count votes, and that results in threats or harms to those individuals, you're not immune from liability in a case like this. Mm. And so, this right. is, you know, th and, and again, this is specific. This judge is responsible for order in his courtroom. And if there's any place that threats should not have a place, <laughs> threats should not be, it would be in judicial proceedings. People are supposed to be able to speak without fear or favor. Right. And I think in, in the gag orders overall, especially there, but in, in all of them, the idea by the judges have, has been we don't want to have threats or intimidation. That's right. Against our witnesses, against our jurors, against our court personnel, where if this speech is leading outside of just here's what they're doing, but that well, could cause. There are laws <laughs> against jury tampering. And, and witness tampering to, and intimidation. Right, right. And one way to tamper would be to intimidate. Uh, right. So, threatening so for this one, the original, you were, like you said very well, there's two different times that he's been fined. The first was that the judge had ordered the post down. It was taken right. down, but then later found that it was still up on another site. Right, it was campaign site. And the, the lawyers for Trump said, wow, that was an oversight. There's so much of a big, you know, organization. He couldn't have known that somebody else had posted there. Um, so we'll make sure it's taken down. So that was the 5,000. And then this last, this 10,000 is very unique um, in that Donald Trump was forced to take the stand. 
And the statement that he had made, and this was regarding, you know, at the time of Michael Cohen's testimony, it was during those days where he had said in public, the judge is, quote, a very partisan judge with a person who's very partisan sitting alongside of him, perhaps even more partisan than he is. And the the judge brought it to, to the attention during the court proceedings and said, you know, look, I you're talking about my clerk who's sitting right beside me. These are similar to the statements that you made before. I'm concerned. Tell me why I shouldn't assume you've you've committed another, you know, violation of the gag order. And the attorneys th- said, oh, no, he was talking about Michael Cohen, you know, the, the witness sitting beside him. And the judge was like, yeah, right. You know, the witness isn't really sitting beside me. It's the same person. You know, you're not saying Michael Cohen is partisan. You're saying Michael Cohen is a liar. So in this statement, the partisanship can only be applied toward the clerk. Where sitting, as I understand it, the the clerk is on the same level as the judge. The I believe so. Down below, is, if I'm, I'm correct. So. I believe so. So he made a most interesting move of saying, you know what? I'm tired of hearing from the attorneys. I want to hear from Mr. Trump himself. Um, so you take the stand and tell me who you made the statement about and why I shouldn't fine you. And for about three minutes, I, I, I believe, he took the stand and made a statement as to what he meant and what he was trying to say. And we've gotten questions, which I think are very interesting questions and also constitutional. Uh, was it a violation of Trump's rights against self-incrimination? Um, well, what, could he be forced to speak against himself? Could he be forced to take the stand? And was this not a violation of his rights? So... So viewers will know we're moving from the First Amendment. And I haven't Good. gotten my ad in yet for the First Amendment Encyclopedia. Oh, that's true. Please. Online at MTSU. Thousands of articles. Uh, that are free written, for access. That are free. Any, anybody can go to Middle Tennessee State University, look up the First Amendment Encyclopedia, and there'll be all kinds of articles there. But and it's updated. From, absolutely. It's, it's frequently updated so that the, the most current cases are on there. The most current issues are on there. So, uh, yes, it's an amazing resource for students and the public alike that is posted by Middle Tennessee State University and to which you um, contribute quite a bit. I do. I do. It was, we started with a two-volume encyclopedia, the First Amendment, and then that has been now put online and lots of lots of updates and new things there. But... What I was going to say is we're moving from the First Amendment, which is free speech, press, religion, assembly, petition, to Fifth Amendment, which is a right against self-incrimination. Mm-hmm. And I'm not actually sure that I know the answer to this. I don't believe that Trump asserted Fifth Amendment privileges. So so we may not know if he... So is he requi- Right. Is he required to right. assert his Fifth Amendment right. privileges? It, 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 well, I mean, typically, if you're called to the stand. I mean, can, the judge says, take the stand. What are you right. supposed to do? Well, you can take the stand and say, I can't answer that question because I'm, I fear that it would incriminate me. I think he could have done that, although this is not, it's not a criminal trial. 
it's a you know it's it's dealing with what are the damages that he has to pay for what I believe to be mostly non-criminal act. Well, so I don't know if any of it was criminal or not, but it's right. A but it's case. a civil case where right. he's it's not on you know at risk in the right. overall so, case for for imprisonment. So I, the the most fascinating thing about this is. The judge basically says, okay, I've heard you and I don't believe you. <laughs> right. Which, and, you know, it's so maybe we shouldn't be particularly surprised that 45 minutes or so later, uh, the president stomps out of the uh, the trial, although that may have been, you know, he's he's pretty good at handling media. Yeah, the histrionics he, have been he, there. He, right. He knew it would get some attention, uh, probably give him a little sympathy that, you know, he has a judge who doesn't believe him. How fair can that judge be? Um, well, let, I, let me add in. Yeah, um, and you, this you is may know more about this than I would. Well, I don't. I don't think I know any more about it because you, you're such a scholar on the, the on all of the amendments, on the amending process and the amendments. But I think in my mind, you're you're absolutely right. This is a civil trial. And for those who don't know, a, a defendant in a civil trial can be forced to take the stand can be forced to take a do a deposition, can be forced to take a stand. I do a lot of personal injury law, and I can call a defendant to the stand and talk to them about a car accident. You know, but weren't you actually drinking? I can call them. They, they don't have a right to, to sit by unless there are potential criminal implications. Right. Right. But in this case, I think we've stepped outside of the civil trial for the fraudulent, potentially fraudulent activities, which have been summarily set, stated um, under judgment that they are, and like you said, we're seeking damages, but the contempt issue, the contempt of court, the, the violation of the gag order is potentially criminal in that the, the judge can fine him, which he clearly did in this case. But if there is the possibility of imprisonment, we step outside of the civil sector. And instead of being forced to testify in, in the civil trial, he's now forced to testify in a, a separate issue that could have him jailed in addition to being fined. And in that case, I think it potentially was a violation of his first or his Fifth Amendment rights. But he would still have to assert it, right? Yes, he would still have to assert so the, it. So the judge, I mean, I think the judge is off the hook here. But but if the mm -hmm. if the president had asserted it. Yes. You know, put, so here's a here's a good legal question. Could the judge have, could he have said what might incriminate me? And he would, what if the judge said, well, I'm only anticipating the amount of the fine, not jail sentence. Could he do that? Yes. Um, so probably, yeah. And that's, that. I like how you just mentioned that because that's another way during, you know, I work in Virginia and Maryland and D.C. And a, a common way to get around the requirement for counsel, right, the right to counsel is the judge will say, okay, I'm only going to, you know, the, I'm going to do away with any option of jail time. So now you don't get counsel. 
Um, you can, you can go ahead and you can plead guilty to, you know, driving without a license or driving on a suspended license, because at most you're going to be fined. What would you like to do? But you no longer have the right to an attorney. So once you take jail time off of the table, then they don't have a right against self-incrimination. They don't have a right for an attorney. You've taken that away. But in Trump's case, the question is, could that could those statements be subjecting him to criminal liability in the future? Whether it's for that issue itself, the the limited, you know, did you violate the gag order or could it go to something more substantial? Yeah. I mean, if you were to if you were to subsequently bring a case for perjury, which would be a criminal offense, I think Trump could reasonably argue for the exclusion of testimony that he thought was only being given for a civil as opposed to a criminal trial. I agree. But then, like you said, then there's the counter of, well, he should have asserted his rights. And most of the case law says you have to affirmatively assert your right. But would he have known? He did. He did have attorneys who could at any point have said, you know, your honor, we're we're invoking his rights. He shouldn't have to take the stand. This is potentially, you know, jailable, a potentially jailable offense. He shouldn't be required to testify. So, yes, in that sense, the attorneys with all the legal counsel he had should have said, Mr. Trump, I'm advising you not to speak. Could and should have been done potentially on his behalf. Um, But I think I think it's certainly a very interesting interesting question. That gives us a great segue over to the final issue of the presidential immunity. Yes. With all of the election issues, um, with where they're headed and even through the the speaker, right, that you've mentioned, it's had far-reaching impacts. The the latest claim by Donald Trump's legal team in the D.C. case, um, the election fraud case by, by Jack Smith, special prosecutor, he had posited through his attorneys what what you think and what we both think is is quite a novel and unique idea and potentially a very good legal theory that you now think has been uh, undermined. Right. Well, I, I, I did not agree with the original briefs, but the, about two weeks ago, Trump made a made a filed a long brief based on a case, United States versus Fitzgerald, uh, 1982 case which had involved President Nixon had, there was a whistleblower within the uh, Air Force. He basically reclassified the position in a way that the guy ended up being fired. And he said, this is clearly you know, a political vendetta. It's not mm-hmm. fair. He filed a civil case and he lost it. And the court basically said that judges, legislators, executives have you know, they have many decisions that they have to make. Uh, if they could be fired for every decision that resulted in somebody being fired or demoted, uh, no one would ever want to be president because you'd be doing right. nothing but participating in law. And the brief was very respectful, uh, which is not always characteristic of Trump's briefs. Right. Uh, they cited a lot of cases, but Jack Smith has now had a, a chance to respond. And I think his I think his arguments are are pretty overwhelming. 
the bank, the main thing being that there is a distinction between uh, immunity from civil liability for carrying out your duties and criminal liability. Mm. And so, yes, judges, a judge has great discretion, you know, that they have to make difficult decisions um, where they can't be sued for that. But a judge can be sued for taking a bribe. Mm. A, a criminal judge, activity. A judge, is, a judge is not exempt. If a judge shoots his wife or husband, uh, they're not exempt from prosecution simply because it was. Now, the, the original brief uh, for Trump had basically said, as long as it's within the outer limits mm. of their responsibilities. And he basically said, well, you know, if, if anybody should be involved in elections, it's the president of the United States. He needs to make sure that they're fair and whatever. But the counter here is, well, you know, there is a big difference between making inquiries with the intention of sustaining the law and finding out who voted and who didn't and that sort of thing and corrupting the law. Hmm. And I think they, you know, I think they've made a, a, a very, and, and what's interesting is I, I had written an article on this for this First Amendment encyclopedia in which I had mentioned that president had made the argument that if you're impeached by Congress and not convicted in the Senate, that you in there, therefore can never be prosecuted hmm. for that. And I had pointed to the language of Mitch McConnell, a Senate majority oh, leader at the time. Who had said this is not you know this is not over, uh, and he he had a particular argument which is he didn't think you could impeach a president once a president was removed from office, mm. and so he said I haven't voted to convict on this impeachment for that reason, but this does not exempt Trump from future prosecution. I had cited that argument. The brief goes on to cite. 20 or 30 different people in Congress who had said the same thing. Mm. And in fact, Trump himself, apparently, in defending himself against impeachment charges in the Senate, had said, um, you know, impeachment, uh, if you vote not to impeach, not to convict me, that I'm still going to be subject to trial in criminal courts if I committed criminal offenses. Mm -hmm. And so they're saying you can't make that argument when you're being in, uh, when you're on trial for impeachment and then come back and make the opposite argument uh, when you're on trial for for criminal uh, criminal offenses. Interesting. OK, so we're going to be able to find out, presumably within the next few weeks, which argument wins. Yeah. And, and again, I, I, I don't. U.S. versus Nixon which is a different case here, you know, had it, or is it Nixon versus U.S.? <laughs> there are two different cases it, 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 in any event. In the Watergate tapes case, the court had made, when they decided that the president had to release tapes, had done so largely on the basis that the grand jury, you know, the criminal is different from civil, and that in criminal cases, uh, the state has a right to every man's evidence or every woman, every person's evidence. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's going to be a stronger, the Nixon cases, that Nixon case is going to be a stronger precedent than the Nixon versus Fitzgerald, which uh, Trump's attorneys have tried to argue. 
Interesting. Okay, so we'll stay tuned on that issue. And thanks, everybody, for joining us for um, an interesting conversation about the First Amendment, added with the Fifth Amendment and a little bit of presidential immunities. Thank you very much. And we will catch you next time on The Legal Weekly Wine.